Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are recording our third podcast session of the day today for Theology 442, History of the Reformations. We're in the Lindbergh book today, the European Reformations. I would say uh, my favorite general overview of the the Reformations in Europe, Cater uh, Lindbergh does uh, good work and he really ties together um, if you want to know other sources that you can look to or read for a, a survey book, it's really sourced exceptionally well. So um, for general listeners who are listening, I give it a the way Johnson. Should we the, do thumbs? Or, what the is way Johnson, two thumbs up. Yeah, the, uh, we'll do for that now the, the way Johnson, opposed, two opposable thumbs. <laughs> um, and so we're going to be talking Catholic renewal and the Counter-Reformation. And I'm going to have uh, a separate video or podcast session I do, depending on if I can get Mike to to do the readings. I have a couple of conclusions from a couple O'Malley books that are very good and I think helpful for dis- discussing this. So I'm going to try to not steal my own thunder from those. And we're just going to do a big-picture survey of the Catholic Reformation or Catholic renewal. And I will just say, without stealing my own thunder, because... Uh, one of the O'Malley pieces is really good about what should we even call this thing. Um, these are packed terms, right? Counter-Reformation implies a <coughs> a, a, a Protestant perspective on, on doing um, history. And so I believe it was Leopold von Ranke who had said he wants to do history as it really was, who, um, who calls it the Counter-Reformation, which gives the impression that this is something that just happened in response to Protestantism. Now, there are cases where that's certainly true, um, but it also means that if we take that approach, we can miss out on a lot that was already happening um, or that was uh, not necessarily a response to Protestantism, but an attempt to dig deeper into Roman Catholicism. But one of the things that I want to stress as we go through this chapter is that this period really is the development of Roman Catholicism. The Roman this will become very important. Um, when we think about the, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, I think a, a misconception that sometimes people have about Catholicism is that everyone in the Catholic Church, all the clergy, all the monks, kind of walk in, in lockstep. Um, it's not necessarily true today, uh, and it certainly wasn't true in the Middle Ages. Um, oh, maybe, Mike, I just ask, ask your perspective on that. Do you think that's just, especially our coming out of our situation as former Synodical Conference Lutherans, where we just picture the church as, you know, doctrinal unity, there can be a Synodical statement of faith, and then everybody's on board. Um, what do you, why do you think we have such a hard time understanding that about the Catholic Church? I think it's just easier to say, here's what Roman Catholics believe, here's what Calvinists believe, here's what Lutherans believe. And uh, I think the other thing, too, is post-Council of Trent, it's probably more true, right, that Roman Catholicism is generally in lockstep. But in the medieval church, I mean, pre-Reformation, I, I, we have this impression that everybody was on the same page. Not at all. Not at all. And uh, there was a lot of divergent uh, ways of looking at some of even the most essential doctrines, right? So I, th- when I think about the Counter-Reformation, first of all, I think about it as more of a, a 
moral reformation as opposed to a theological, although there were certainly a lot of theological things that were going on there. Um, but I, I do kind of like that counter-reformation is a, not the best way to describe it, but historically the, there's, some, there's a good point there that the Roman Catholic Church has to solidify itself as opposed to something else. And so yeah. it is a counter in that And there might way. have been a Council of Trent, for instance, that happened eventually, but it wouldn't have been the Trent that happened without Protestantism. No, it's, I mean, it's definitely a reaction, right? I mean, it's, it has to be a reaction. That was the time it was. So, yeah, that, that's, I think the more you dig into uh, medieval history, uh, you, you do, you really do see a, a lot of divergent kind of, of viewpoints and then there, there is kind of a pre-Trent and a post-Trent Roman Catholicism. Yeah, and, and, and you know, this is, um, you know, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, they, they can all have their, their different emphases, both what doctrines are more important to them, but also for spirituality, as we might call it today, or how to practice the Christian life. Um, there and can different be... f- philosophers that they, that they look through to look at yeah. the different doctrines yeah and regional differences in worship i mean this is one of the things i'm guessing you talk about in class mike is um sometimes when we say the tridentine mass it there's a lot that goes along with that that isn't actually trent but and o'malley's good on that too that actually when people say trent in a lot of ways what they're referring to isn't things that actually came out of what the council actually said but how it was practiced after um but there's at this point a, a what people today would probably find a shocking amount of um, diversity in, in, in some worship practice or what the service might look like. And, and it will be Trent, as you said with that too, Mike, that um, will standardize things, right? What what stands as the mass that most Catholics would have experienced up until Vatican II is going to be associated with Trent. Um, but that ought not lead us to to fail to appreciate the diversity that was in the church at this time. And so you have things um, like uh, lay societies that will develop, which is people who can live out aspects of a monastic life um, while being lay people. Um, new religious orders, uh, um, the Capuchins are one that come out of this. Uh, the Capuchins are important in the Detroit area, um, because I don't think he's been canonized yet, but Solanus Casey, who's a big push to canonize in Detroit, was, I believe, a Capuchin monk, and the, some of the food kitchens are very much associated with the Capuchins at this time. Italy has a number of what we might call proto-reformers. Um, the most famous, probably Savonarola, who has a hymn in our hymnal. Uh, but even he, as you mentioned, Mike, is going to be more moral than doctrinal reform. Um <coughs> not necessarily justification by grace through faith, but he actually kind of gets hold of Florence um, and uh, it's going to end poorly in the end. Alexander VI, who is my favorite pope uh, (laughs) because he was just the playboy pope. I mean, he just didn't care. Um, And he was Machiavelli's favorite pope, so he's mine too. Um, not not for his religious devotion, right? But because he was just so brazen about flouting stuff. Um, Alexander VI is going to see that eventually Savonarola is excommunicated and, and hanged um, in 1498. Um, but he will be an important kind of proto-reformer in Italy. Um, female religious life in a lot of places is going to blossom. 
And this is uh, something that we as Protestants don't always recognize, that in many ways the Protestant Reformation uh, limited the ability of women to participate in the religious life of the church, uh, not because the Protestant Reformers were against women, but the this was kind of the, uh, with an emphasis on vocation, for instance, the household becomes a center of piety um, in Protestant practice. And so the woman often then was, was wife. And so you didn't have the opportunity for a religious life or a intellectual life that, for, that say, a convent um, might uh, supply. This is not to say one side was more progressive than, than the other. But uh, there's going to be signs of renewal in the Roman Catholic Church already um, before the uh, what we might call the Counter-Reformation is going to take place. One of the problems, though, is if you're going to have really good reform, you need a really good reforming pope. And when you get a reforming pope, they, they either don't live long or they have trouble working through the, you know, the bureaucracy to make change. And what you do get is a lot of what we might call Renaissance popes. And uh, Renaissance popes are great if you like to travel and you want to go to Rome mm -hmm. and be impressed, right? Um, they, they endow the arts. They're about architecture. They're about restoring things. They're about governing Rome in many ways, but not necessarily as concerned with, with doctrinal reform. So you have some of these popes who are not bad, wicked people openly, as Alexander VI was. <laughs> um, but these are, their concerns are more local um, or more cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to be as concerned with doctrinal or, or strict moral reform within the... Uh, within the church. That being said, too, Oliver Olson especially has done a fair amount of work showing that there were um, Lutheran-influenced communities that were established in Italy about this time, too, where the doctrine of justification was being preached. Um, a connection point for Lutherans is uh, Matthias Flaccius Illyricus, his uncle Baldo Lupentino was put to death by the Venetian Inquisition um, for being a Lutheran, and that title is always hard to nail down what it means because they At just call it heretic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's the one who, who tells uh, Matthias to, to go north, right, to Germany. Um, and Flacius or Flacius or Flacius will be very important for uh, Lutheranism post-Luther. Uh, and so it's not that Italy was immune to uh, evangelical influences, but it also had... <coughs> competing calls for renewal or reform. So there wasn't as much of a feel of if you wanted to reform the Catholic Church, you had to leave it. There was um, some established traditions of being able to live out your personal piety, um, being able to have a, uh emphasis on maybe simplicity of life or um, deeper spirituality, but in a way that didn't have to involve leaving the church or trying to get others to to leave it. That being said, uh, this brings us in the uh, the Lindbergh book to the Inquisition. And maybe, Mike, if you hear that term, Inquisition, you can play the role of, of students now where I throw it out and say, what do you think that word means? Um, or what does it mean to you? What, what are the things that come to mind when you hear that Inquisition? 
Well, I don't think this is the way I should think about it, but I think about violence right away, right? Uh, people being burned at the stake and all this kind of stuff. Um, rooting out um, uh, doctrinal uh, adherents who seem to fight against the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that's all tied together with doctrine in the, in the view of, let's say, the Society of Jesus, where the Jesuits, where anything that goes against either the morality or the doctrine that's established by the church is all kind of lumped into one. Yeah, I mean, that... Loyola is going to very much stress loyalty to the church as, I mean, that's where the, um, the Jesuits are special for the vow they, they take of obedience to the Pope. So, and, and then I, I think Spain, I think Even taking... Loyola himself gets called in by the Inquisition. There's a, a great thing in the, uh, the biography of Loyola that we read in honors and Loyola is like gets called in and he's like, yeah, you know, you know and uh, just cooperates with them. And then he's set free, which reminds us not everybody was put to death, but this is when he'd been converted and he kind of starts preaching a little. And yeah. So it makes sense they're leery, but he had a very nice time with the Inquisition. As nice as you can have. Right. And, and I, this is, you're going to have to correct me and, and the students who are listening. I, I tie, and this is not fair, I tie Jesuits with the Inquisition. And, and that's not fair. The Jesuits are great on education. Great. I mean, they are forging. And they're usually not inquisitors, but I think it's fair to say both grow out of similar impulses. Right. And so the Jesuits are, I mean, Boston College. uh, And many Roman Catholic clergy will even view the Jesuits kind of as inquisitors, as being, you know, uber Catholics. The Pope's police or something like that. But, I mean, you're talking about some of the most some of the bravest missionaries going to the toughest places, going to the far East, going to India, subcontinent, going to Africa, uh, setting up universities that really, I mean, you know, dominate, but are very, very powerful and influential in America, especially. So that's, that's kind of my, I need to be corrected on that a little bit sometimes, but the inquisition is going to turn violent in some, in some places but the impulse of both of those movements, one for missionary work and, and education, but then also, well, can add their service to the poor, of course, but then doctrinal purity come out of this counter-reformation movement, right? And and we got to do something. I, I mean, I, I think you get to, it seems like you get to a tipping point where we're like, we have to do something. I Maybe something that's similar, and I don't want to get too controversial here, but in America, especially today, you have a lot of, let's just say evangelicals, bad word, but for lack of a better term, are going to promote certain political things. Um, and they their impulse may be pure or right, or at least they think so. But the damage to the reputation of the church is not worth it sometimes. And I wonder if that can be said of the Counter-Reformation, especially the Inquisition. Yeah, and I think it kind of... Another thing that's interesting about the Inquisition and the Jesuits, and we're going to come back to the Jesuits in a bit, but is they're both born out of um, a Catholic experience that wasn't directly tied to Protestantism, but as you said, will become increasingly focused on it, right? So Loyola 
probably never read any Protestants, especially before his conversion. <clears throat> Yet the Jesuits are going to become known as Die Verdamten Jesuiten, mm-hmm. right? Those damn Jesuits um, for their re-Catholicizing efforts in Protestant territories. And so also the Inquisition existed before Protestantism. It goes back to, I believe, at least the 13th century. Um, and uh, it was used against uh, kind of like small religious communities that were viewed as being a, um, not Pro- faithful to traditional Catholicism. Problematic <coughs> in some form. Right. Yeah. And so, um, for instance, with uh, the uh, Catharist heresy, um, but uh, they exist before, but they're going to become increasingly focused on Protestantism. And so the Inquisition is often associated, first and foremost, with Spain, Part of the reason is probably Monty Python, right? <laughs> no one escapes the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, the truth is, a lot of people actually did. In fact, uh, one of the best ways to escape the Spanish Inquisition was to get pregnant because uh, they'd bring you in and, you know, they'd say, hey, we think, you know, you're a witch or something. <clears throat> but if you were pregnant, they'd let you go kind of until you had the baby often, and then they'd forget about you. So this was a, this was a, a good route to take. Um, but, uh, there will be an Italian inquisition too, that is perhaps crueler than the Spanish inquisition. But as you got it, you mentioned violence, Mike, one of the interesting things is looking back by today's standards, we would look at the inquisition and go, that's terrible, you know, a terrible way to do a trial or justice. But it was actually a, a huge improvement over the Spanish judicial system. Um, so yes, the inquisitors sometimes use torture, but that confession had to be repeated 24 hours later, not under torture, which was like a progressive stance, right? Um, the type of torture used was often more, more measured. I sometimes tell my students, though, think of the torture as like if you, you should tell to the guys in the class, like if you and your seventh grade buddies came up with a way to like <clears> – <throat> pry the truth out of someone. So it usually involved like yanking on limbs, <clears throat> messing with people's junk. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, um, you know, tying people to stuff. It just seems to me like what seventh grade boys would come up with, you know, but uh, <clears throat> the, uh, I remember we had a, a buddy once who was punishment. We duct taped him in his the bed of his dad's pickup truck uh, for a while to, to think about, you know, whatever he'd done. I don't even remember what he, <laughs> what he had done. But, you know, we were, I don't know. I, the impulse is there in the, in the old Adam. It's just when it becomes institutionalized that that's when it becomes a, a bit of a, a bit of a horror story. Yeah. Yeah. And so we are, if we see the Inquisition in context, I'm sorry, the frog in my throat. It was actually, uh, a step forward when it comes to justice, especially, too, uh, in that the Spanish government used needed prisoners to man galleys. Um, And so they were especially prone to convict people. And so there was actually cases, as Lindbergh uh, rightly points out, and one of my advisors in grad school did a lot with the Inquisition, and his lecture for class was phenomenal on on this one. Um, But it's absolutely true uh, that many who were convicted by the state would confess religious crimes 
in order to be convicted instead under the Inquisition. Hmm. Right? So there were some that, that um, did uh, recognize this progress for the day. That being said, uh, it's a major stain on the past of the church. It, a lot of people were unfairly convicted. A lot of people were maimed. A lot of people uh, were killed. Some people will say, well, what about the secrecy was bad too, but sometimes the secrecy was to protect. So if Mike got called in by the Inquisition and I'm trying him, I kept that secret to protect his reputation. So if we find him innocent and he goes back out, mm-hmm. everybody's not like Mike's a heretic. But that secrecy also enabled people to get away with stuff that was um, problematic too. The, the Inquisition in Italy um, gets especially bad under Pope Paul IV, um, he was impressed with what was taking place in Spain, and uh, he wants to clamp down on very real evangelical threats, um, from his perspective, threats in Italy. And uh, he almost does entirely away um, with due process, so much so that when he dies, uh, there's a Roman mob who uh, then burns the rec- the records of the Inquisition there um, and sets prisoners free. So that kind of gets a, a little bit at the Inquisition. Now, there's still a, a, a inquisitional office or whatever in the papacy. Um, Benedict, before he was pope, was actually in charge of this. But this is no longer, we're going to torture you or stuff like that. What it means, though, is they oversee kind of doctrine and practice in the church. Um, and so, the, and all churches have this where they have a committee that says, okay, the bishop, you know, and our... our president or you know whoever's control of a a a diocese or or a district or whatever a church can say you're doing what's wrong and and you need to change and if you don't we're gonna you can't be a pastor anymore or whatever that there's going to be a committee that someone can appeal to you know an appeals committee and so it's probably closer to that although although it's different in the Roman Catholic Church than in Protestant churches um the other big thing to come out of this time in this regard too is uh, the Index of Prohibited Books, um, first published in 1559 um, by the Congregation of the Inquisition, um, which that title of that has been changed but still exists. This will be important, too, because this is the beginning of censorship of what's going to be read in, in the Catholic Church and Catholic territories. Indexes existed in different localities before this, but this was the first attempt to build an official Roman Catholic one. Um so to kind of uh, bring it all into one place. And there were a lot of books that made it on there that would surprise you. If you if you look back, um, just for fun, Google, um, you know, some of the books that made it on the index of prohibited books in the 16th century. And uh, there's some who were pretty good Catholic authors who for one reason or another managed to make it on. Sometimes things would be um, published in an amended format with the problematic stuff taken out. But this also does lead to debates to what extent did the uh, Index of Prohibited Books and the Inquisition kind of stall learning in these territories um, and the development of new ideas as opposed to uh, some of the progressive notions that we will see develop in Protestantism. And there's scholars who still argue that back and forth about how much of an effect that that, that had. I, I, I mean, I, I personally think it it did have some, and there's a reason that um, oh, I have a theory that just in most continents, the North has better universities than the South. 
I mean, the SEC has better football right now, but the Big Ten has better academics. Yeah. If you think of Europe, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, um, the German universities in the north. It... Well, we, we I talk about that in our, when we talk about, like, <coughs> Israel, north, you know, the divided kingdom north and south, that in, in most places, not always, but in most places, the north looks down upon the south. Yeah. Italy, Lansing's America, north of Ann yeah, America, uh, you know, certain places like that. England's different, and uh, I don't know about Germany so much, but uh, in Israel is different. The, the northern tribes were the backwater but tribes. You've got the Prussians in the north yeah. and then the Bavarians in the south. Yeah. So there's something to that. Um, <clears throat> Jesuits, big picture stuff. Um, in, uh, in honors, we read uh, the biography of Ignatius Loyola, but Ignatius Loyola is a fascinating man, and he's someone when I read about that I really respect, even though his organization uh, wasn't good for Protestantism. He was a soldier who had been very vain. Um, he gets wounded in battle, and the bone's actually sticking out. And they, they patch him up. He's going to heal up. And he can't stand having the bone sticking out kind of funny. And he has them saw it off. Um, just a tough guy. As he, as he uh, is recovering in the hospital, the hospital must not have had very good Wi-Fi. So he couldn't play Angry Birds or anything. And so he reads the lives of the saints, and he's inspired by the, them. And he decides he wants to lead a religious life. And so he goes off and begins to lead his religious life and is trying to get a feel for what that means. At some point, he realizes he's going to need... Originally, he wants to, to go and um, do mission work uh, in the Middle East, at, like Francis did as well. Um, but uh, eventually, he's going to re realize he needs more education, and he's like a Billy Madison he goes back and starts a pretty rudimentary level of education and works his way back up through uh, college education. And so education is very important to him. From his military background, he's able to build a religious order that's very um, disciplined and structured. Sometimes they're unfairly, uh, unfairly painted as being militaristic as a whole, but um, although there's aspects where they could be. But he's going to have these people that begin to follow him, and this is known. It becomes known as the Society of Jesus, or Jesuits. And the Jesuits have had a big impact in America. There's lots of universities in America that were founded by Jesuits. In fact, oftentimes some of those smaller schools that make it into the March Madness and make a nice little run, uh, many of them with Catholic names, they are Jesuit schools. Loyola's, Xavier's, um, Marquette, right? These are, are Jesuit institutions. And while Loyola originally wants to be about mission work, because of this emphasis on education, education becomes extremely important too. And so the Jesuits will be known for missions and schools. And they're able to start some very good schools in Protestant territories. And sometimes uh, parents just want the best school for their kid. And this is a way of kind of winning the upper middle class or the ruling class in the land, and they were very good at targeting the ruling class for conversion back to Roman Catholicism. Um, and so Jesuits are, are like a love them, hate them type of group, even within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they'll have popes who just love them, and they're the Pope stormtroopers, and other popes even who aren't big fans. But we'll talk about Jesuits a little more and stuff that comes up, but they will become critical for expanding the Roman Catholic Church, um, but then also for winning back Protestant territories. And Mike mentioned their mission work. Um, something that they're way ahead of their time for in mission work is 
is they wrestle with how can we preach Christianity in a way that this culture will understand and how can Christianity kind of take roots in this culture rather than the mission work that was being carried about out by some others in the new world, which was just to try to force the church on the existing place without much concern for the language or culture of that place. So I, to, when people want to understand Jesuits in the 16th century, I usually just tell them, think very gifted people committed to education, committed to the church, and very determined to take uh, the church's doctrine throughout the world. Uh, but extremely gifted people that Loyola gathers around him. Uh, as far as Council of Trent, we'll get more into Trent too. Um, but uh, maybe first, if I can bounce it off you, Mike, as I would with the students, if you hear Trent, what are some things that maybe come to mind for you? What, and you don't have to worry about if they're true or false, but just how do you hear people use Trent or talk about Trent if it comes up? So they're going to anathematize everything, right? <laughs> if you read the text, it's going to be, you know, uh, you know, we we uh, we condemn this, we condemn that, we condemn this, we condemn that. Lar Most people don't know Trent actually um, condemned pitchers batting. Oh no, I, but, that uh, was overturned, and <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds more like a that's more like a modern Vatican II thing to have the DH. Um, so definitely, I suppose it'd be more participation for the lady. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, you know, this is a. Trent is the culmination of trying to get a church council that the Lutherans wanted forever. And there's some Regensburg and there's some different, uh, you know, attempts at, at these kinds of things. Finally, it comes down to, we are not going to have a general council of all the church, the Lutherans and the Protestant, the rest of the Protestants are over there and we're just going to have uh, this one group. And so they're going to double down. What I think about Trent is they're going to double down on quite a few things. But there's going to be some improvements, of course, within the Counter-Reformation. They're going to solidify the mass, and so that mass is really going to be standard up until the 1960s. Uh, the architecture of the <coughs> Catholic uh, churches um, are going to be fairly standardized, and then uh, Vatican II is going to change some of that. So in our worship class, uh, we'll say, if you go into a church, a uh, Catholic church, you should be able to indicate when it was, if, if it was built in the 60s or earlier or not, you can tell by where the altar is. Um, so there, when, if, you're, if you're Roman Catholic, your grandparents may have talked about the Latin Mass or something like that. Um, that would have been a, the Tridentine uh, Mass. Uh, and uh, that, you know, the problem with then the, there's a Vatican I Council in the 18, late 1800s and the Vatican II. And that's going to be the big papal infallibility one. And uh, there's a large gap between Trent and, and Vatican I. And uh, there's... A huge gap. There's, there's not a lot of movement with, a, with doctrine, with how to deal with the modern world, the Enlightenment. And then it kind of comes all flooding together in Vatican II. And Vatican I's big answer to how to deal with the challenges of the Enlightenment, etc., was basically papal infallibility, right. which was a not really... A, an attempt to engage things, but it, yeah. just to double down on church authority. And that was kind of unfortunate, I, I think, just because I think there sh could have been smaller steps. And so you're seeing a reaction against Vatican II in a lot of different ways, especially when it comes to worship. And to be fair to Vatican II, also, a lot of the stuff that people have done in the name of Vatican II 
doesn't actually come from Vatican II, but Vatican II kind of became like this hippie-ish, right. boomerish chance to right. do what people wanted to do. And naturally, there's going to be a reaction against that. Right. And the next, you know, and, we, and you see the Latin mass coming back some places too. And yeah. in many ways, the Latin mass is kind of one big, okay, boomer. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you see a parallel in, in just culture in, in general as because there was not incremental steps to fix things. For instance, Vatican II is more about like getting the people involved so we should have the mass and the vernacular. Well, that should have been done centuries before. There, in, think about in America, like the civil rights movement. I mean, should have never had to happen in the first place, right? right? And so with those changes that many of them were absolutely good and fantastic, there was so much change that some things got, were not as thoughtful as they should have been. You can see that in the sexual revolution in the 60s, tied with civil rights and all the other good things that, that happened in the 60s. And there's a reason why Vatican II happened in the 60s. So Trent was some good things, doubled down on um, anti protestant doctrine and then it just kind of stopped it just kind of stopped and and there was then not like a revisiting of some of these things for so long and then it kind of yeah and then it kind of blows up and again that you have a lot of that has to do with the the personalities of the popes pre-vatican ii that they were kind of (laughs) hard and 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 didn't know how to deal with what we call largely modernity right and so Trent looms large for the Roman Catholic Church and for Western society, I think, all the way until today. We still haven't kind of figured that out. Yeah, and so this, um, while we say there's 300 years between Trent and Vatican II, and it probably would have been good to have more councils in there, it also says something about Trent that what it did was able to last for 300 years as well. Uh, Very thorough. Yeah, the, the popes had for a long time tried not to call the Council of Trent. Um, they were concerned that you would have things like conciliarism, which tried to elevate councils above um, the pope, or the popes would, uh, would get gains out of this. Um, there was concern that national interests would play too big a part. But finally it just becomes clear there has to be something. Um, kings and emperors and princes are calling for this. Hey, you've been saying for years we'd have this. We're dealing with Protestant minorities or majorities in our territories. Um, you have uh, local and national churches that um, are calling for this. You have reformers within the church. And so it's called it Trent, but people ought not think, you know, they met for a year in Trent. Uh, this lasted almost 20 years. It doesn't all happen in Trent. Sometimes it's called to different places to meet. Um but I would say the most important things to keep in mind, as Mike said, uh, they're going to anathematize Protestant teachings. Now, they don't say Luther, Calvin, Zwingli specifically, but they will say if anyone teaches that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will anathematize, anathematize, for instance, the teaching of justification by grace through faith alone. But on the opposite side, they will say bishops need to be visiting uh, their dioceses, their churches. We need to better train our priests, and there needs to be more emphasis on preaching. Um, We need to uh, inculcate in the laity uh, 
a knowledge of the church's teaching, so catechesis. Um, we need to encourage lay religiosity. It's not just for the for the monks and nuns to practice their faith. And these are all impulses that are Catholic renewal, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll see both aspects of there's, there's counter-reformation, but there is also then Catholic renewal. And notice how some of these themes are Protestant themes as well. The importance of preaching, um, the importance of well-trained clergy. And so uh, there will be uh, out of trend um, some renewed vitality in the church that will that will come of it too, but there's also things like the decreal of Jerome's Vulgate as the normative edition of the the Bible, which is a reaction against Protestantism and humanism, uh, which would have looked to the the Greek and the and the Hebrew. Um, so some, sometimes people ask, well, was was Trent successful? To answer that, you really have to say, well, at what? Yeah. Um, if you say having a more educated clergy, it was certainly successful. Um, the Roman Catholic Church had much better trained clergy after this. It had more engaged preachers and bishops. If you mean um, bringing about unity, well, the Protestants don't actually get there or really get invited until most of the big decisions anathematizing Protestantism have been made. Um, it wasn't a bridge-building council. Um, and if you mean for uh, conciliarism, you know, the, an emphasis on church councils or what then not as much. It was a win for the popes. Um, and then it was a win in, for, I would say, for a, kind of a parish life, maybe. Mm-hmm. Becomes more vibrant uh, as a result of it. Um, but we'll I talk mean, about... Catholic piety, even mysticism. I mean, these things, a lot of these societies are, are going to... Uh, they're going to take that stuff from the monasteries and, and maybe bring it to the to the laity. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and so you're going to have... Um, St. John of the Cross or uh, St. Teresa of, of Avila who become models for kind of this mystical individual piety type thing. And so it'll be an odd mix of encouraging some of the individual spiritual life while also, you know, corporatizing the the church. Um, but as Mike said too, the, the mass that largely comes out of this, uh, I mean, is going to be the Catholic standardized Catholic experience for, for years. And I would say, um, whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic, if you're in an area that has a Latin Mass, um, that's doing the old-school Trent Latin Mass, not just the Novus Ordo in Latin, it's worth going to one. You know, sit in the back. You don't got to cause a scene. Um, but it really is interesting to get a feel for, uh, you know, what the Mass would have looked like and if, felt like. If there was a... If there was a time capsule, yeah, you know, a living time capsule, that would be it. Uh, all right. Well, I guess anything, Mike, you have otherwise Catholic renewal or counter-reformation. Yeah, I think it's important, to, you know, if you're if you're a Lutheran or a Protestant, that you'd be a little bit charitable about this stuff without saying, with rightfully saying, you know, you probably shouldn't anathematize every little stinking thing in Trent and, and the counter-reformation. Obviously, there's some criticisms that are 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 that are do it. Um, 
if you're Roman Catholic, this is this is part of your history, right? I mean, to understand your Catholic parish and what's going on in the in the world and the papacy still today, this looms large. And so this is these are important historical things. And I think that's what's brilliant about history. And what's so fun about history is it doesn't take much to make these connections that these seeds were planted here. And we're not so much individual free thinkers as we always like to uh characterize ourselves too, you know, and that that's a little bit of an American thing as well, but uh, a modern thing as well that we, 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 we are tied to the past more than we think we are. I'm trying to think, Mike, what was Marquette when they changed their name? Cause they didn't want to offend people. Was it warriors before? I wasn't, no, I was it was th- something before they changed it. Wasn't it? Yeah, I was, I want to say Huron, but that's uh that's Eastern Michigan. <laughs> Let me, I'll look it up. Because I'm, I'm wondering, I wonder if when they changed mascots, if they ever thought of being Deaver Dompton Yezuitan. <laughs> that would have been a, a kind of a fun poke in the eye at the, well, you at do the have Lutherans. The, yeah, they were warriors. And the mascot was a Native American. Now they're American. like Golden Eagles or something, right? Something like that, yeah. I, we were around, I think, when they were trying to choose that. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I, it was more not the name, but the mascot. Okay, so... All right, that's tangential. Um, Hopefully you got something out of this. Uh, Students, be submitting your notes. Be in touch if you have questions. People who are just listening along, we really hope you are getting something out of this. Um, We're hoping that doing things this way kind of provides for you to get a little bit of a window into what we do at WLC as well. Um, If you're enjoying these, subscribe to the podcast, share, like, review, all that. We very much appreciate it. Students, uh, you don't get any extra credit. If you do any of that, right, Mike? <laughs> You're more liberal with extra credit than I am, I think, though. I have a few occasions where I'll allow that. Yeah. I just don't believe in works of super irrigation. <laughs> um, these are mercy, usually mercy works. like, uh, <laughs> like do Indulgences. You st- do you still want to pass? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, in the meanwhile, uh, stay healthy and let the bird fly. <laughs>